This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. everybody and welcome back to another episode of history off the page that was Anne hathaway singing the haunting melody i dreamed a dream from the 2012 film adaptation of les miserables which of course was based on a 1980 musical which in and of itself was based on victor hugo's 1862 novel of the same name it is of course a very powerful scene the young woman fantine who is played by Anne hathaway obviously lies dying She's literally kind of like going to sleep into a coffin. And she's singing this lament, kind of reflecting on a life of, of dreams that not just are unfulfilled, but dreams that have, have turned into a horrible, horrible nightmare. She starts off by sort of talking about, you know, she met this guy and they fell in love. And it seemed like, you know, this kind of innocent romance. And it turns into a nightmare. Basically, the guy is playing a game. He seduces her. Once he's done with the seduction, he leaves her. Uh, and of course, she gets pregnant. She winds up working in a factory, as many young women did back in the beginning of the 19th century. But because the foreman also makes advances towards her and she rebuffs him, eventually she gets thrown out of the factory, in part because they find out she had a child out of wedlock. Sort of destitute, she tries selling her hair. She tries prostitution. She eventually uh, contracts tuberculosis or consumption. And so, again, as she's singing this powerful song, she's literally laying there, looking back, talking about how life has killed the dream that she dreamed. Now, many of you are probably wondering, why am I starting a podcast about socialism with a clip from a popular contemporary musical? What does Anne Hathaway have to do with socialism? I should be talking about class or factories 
We're playing something like the Internationale. For those of you that are familiar with European history, that's kind of the anthem of communism. Because that's the way that we often talk and think about socialism in a historical sense. We tend to approach it primarily from an intellectual standpoint. And it's a story about theory and doctrine and Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. I'm supposed to be telling you about terms like the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and their struggle to control the means of production. And while I understand that kind of approach to it, I have to say the reality is it's a very dry and abstract way to kind of approach the subject of socialism and really begin to understand its origins in the beginning of the 19th century. Now, we talk a lot about socialism in contemporary politics, certainly here in the United States, also in Europe, uh, many countries around the world, right? Socialism is obviously a a topic of, of constant discussion, even now, almost 200 years after its birth. But when we talk about socialism, especially in politics, what we're really talking about is the role of government in society. Now, when I say that word socialism, some of you like that, right? Some of you, if this was Facebook or Instagram or something, TikTok, you would give it a big thumbs up, right? Oh, socialism. And what you have in your mind when I'm talking about socialism is probably a place like Denmark or Norway or Sweden. You think about a place where government takes an active role in promoting and regulating the well-being of its citizens. Socialism, to you, means programs that help people, such as public education, healthcare, financial support for the sick, the poor, the elderly. Right, and, you know, if, if we're thinking just in sort of general terms, yeah, those, those things sound very good. Of course, others of you that are listening to the podcast have a very different vision of what socialism means. You're not thinking of Sweden circa 2020. You're thinking of Eastern Europe, let's say Poland, let's say Czechoslovakia. The year is 1970, and it's cold and cloudy and dirty. You might be thinking of South America, maybe a little bit warmer, but still, long lines for everything. Everything looks the same. There's no individuality. And what you're thinking of is heavy government involvement in the economy. You're thinking about price controls, government ownership of the means of uh, production or private enterprise. And perhaps most importantly, when you guys think about socialism, you think about strong limits on personal freedoms and very few individual rights. It's always cloudy, cold, and rainy in this kind of image that we have of socialism. There's certainly no joy in it. Now, there's obviously strong historical reasons to think about socialism in both of these ways, especially if you're approaching it from the perspective of someone living at the start of the 21st century. This is what socialism is discussing, is basically government programs designed to help the population. So I get that. But if we are approaching the subject of socialism from a historical standpoint, if we want to think about what it looks like at the beginning and the middle of the 19th century, then we have to take a different approach to it. Because it doesn't start as this kind of group of, you know, learned men, and they're all sitting in their study, and they're, you know, chewing on their their pipes and things like that. Mm, You know, what should we think about this? There, There is some of that, obviously, if you're talking about Karl Marx, but that's not the heart of socialism. Even Karl Marx isn't the dominant sort of force in in socialism that you think he is until you get to like the 1860s and 70s. Socialism doesn't start with some government bureaucrat who starts thinking, hmm, you know, I really want to help the poor. Uh, I really want to expand my power base. I really want to start regulating more things. 
Socialism starts with the Fontines of the world, with the character that Anne Hathaway plays in Les Mis. It starts as a reaction to very difficult conditions that were experienced by working-class people during the birth of the industrial economy, especially in those urban areas that we talked about during our last podcast. And one of the things that I really want to highlight here is it's not just that people were suffering. People have suffered throughout history. People have had tough times. There's been starvation. It didn't produce socialism. So why is this different? We're going to explore this in just a moment. But one of the things is that there is an emotional side to this. Right? It's not just that Fantine, oh, she's experiencing inequality. Oh, she was discriminated against. She was exploited. All of those things are true. But the real problem for Fantine is that she is literally starving, literally dying. She's forced to sell her hair. In some versions, she's forced to sell her teeth. So there's an emotional aspect to this, a feeling that like you've lost your human dignity and that it's being crushed by forces that are sort of far beyond your control. Yes, Fantine made a mistake here or there, but is that enough to condemn someone's life? Most of it would say, no, that doesn't make sense. So I think it's important as we start these discussions about socialism to keep this kind of emotional or experiential aspect of the movement in your mind. Whatever it eventually became in the 19th, 20th, even the 21st century, the moment when it's born is born again out of this experience of human suffering and misery. So in today's episode, we'll discuss the emergence of socialism in the first half of the 19th century, looking at initial responses to industrialization by both workers, owners, and social reformers. We will, of course, get into the origins of communism under Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. We're not going to leave them out. But we're also going to look at a number of other alternative socialist movements and figures that range from utopianism and anarchism to the founding of modern political parties like the German Social Democratic Party or the SPD. Finally, we'll end by talking about the emergence of socialist culture, and we'll talk about the emergence of a class-based identity and how it's linked to especially these conditions that we saw before that workers are going through, that they're living through in the cities. Okay, so let's pick off where we left off with the virtuous Fantine. It's worth asking the question again, what makes her so special? Again, she's not the first person in history to starve to death, to experience inequalities, suffering, this sort of thing. What makes it so different? And again, part of the answer to that is the psychology of the moment. It's not just that people are experiencing a difficult economy, difficult labor conditions, poverty, but it's actually a feeling of sinking, right? People, if you think about people's psychology, people have put up with a lot. Think about the experience of immigrants coming to places like the United States, Brazil, other countries around the world, Australia. Those first waves of immigrants, my ancestors, for example, some of whom came from places like Poland and Russia, they literally, they get off the boat and what do they do? They say, okay, I'm going to take any job I can get. I'm going to work in these difficult conditions. I'll be in the sweatshop and I may never actually even get out of it. But I'm going to open up a path for my children to move up the social ladder eventually. I am going to suffer, but there is going to be a payoff because in the long run, things are going to get better. During the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it's actually the opposite. The people that are moving into these cities, the people that are being born into these industrial slums in places like 
London and Manchester, along the Rhine River. These people feel a loss of status. They feel like they are sinking. And so again, there's this kind of psychological trauma that's taking place. Now, before we can get into the depths of the psychological aspects of industrialization, we need to first understand why is it that workers feel like they are declining? Why is it that they feel like they're losing a sense of respect or status? And a lot of this goes back to the nature of production. Before 1750, the way that most things are produced is in workshops by kind of skilled workers, what we would call artisans. These are people like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the blacksmith. These are all people that have have lived in villages and things like that, uh, small towns potentially. They've trained, they've acquired skills, right? If you're going to be a carpenter, I don't just give you wood and some nails and say, go build a house. You're going to screw that up. You want to be a good carpenter, you have to start off as being kind of like a gopher, right? So a gopher in English, it's, it's the person that comes and you get all the materials and you bring it to the, the master carpenter. And over the course of time, you start to learn the trade and you learn the techniques, you learn the inside job, you start practicing, right? If you're going to be someone that's going to cook, you don't just start by throwing ingredients in. They start you off by chopping vegetables, Because you have to get really good and get your technique down. And then as you do that, you start taking on more and more complicated jobs. That same idea exists before 1750 for most skilled laborers, right? So you work in a workshop, you start as an apprentice, you go, you find a master, you say, okay, I'll apprentice under you. And in exchange for that, the master usually doesn't give you financial compensation. It's not like you come in and say, okay, what will my salary be if I'm going to work for you, if I'm going to intern for you? Usually what would happen is the apprentices would get room and board and then they would learn the the trade and they would do some of the more basic aspects of the trade. And over time, they would work their way up to become journeymen. And eventually, if they were good enough, if the, the master supported it, they would actually become masters in their own right. And they would either go out and start their own shops or a lot of times what happens is they actually marry into the families, right? So you become like the son-in-law maybe that the family doesn't have that's then going to take over that production. Now, what begins to happen during this time period is that those people begin to be replaced by the factories. As things like textile productions become more and more automated, or at least more and more mechanized, you no longer need all those people working in that industry, right? The family that used to operate a single loom to produce textiles is no longer going to be able to compete in terms of economies of scale with a large factory. And so then what happens, not just to the dad, but to the mom and to the kids, as the dad kind of loses his position, he loses his job, and he loses the idea of being a skilled worker. Some of you out there, you may have worked in various trades. You may have certain skills. But what happens when the economy decides that they no longer need that skill? You say, okay, well, I've got to take a job. I'll go work in construction. I'll go work in a place where I can sell my labor, my physical labor. And maybe you have to do that for a time period. But if that was permanent, if you permanently lost recognition that you have an important skill, now you start feeling again like you're sinking in status. Now, one of the things that we talked about during our previous episode on industrialization, and then especially on the growth of cities, was that you had this large number of migrants coming in from farms, coming in from villages, and they show up in big cities like Manchester, Leeds, uh, eventually places like Berlin and Paris. Uh, Milan, other industrial centers in Europe, especially in the first half of the 19th century. 
they too face a crisis and a feeling of a loss of status. And this is because their skills are no longer deemed necessary or really in, in high demand by the economy that they're shifting into, which will become known as the wage economy. Think about it for a second. If you are a farmer and you grow up in a rural area, and this is before things like universal education, primary education, high school, all that, what are the skills that you possess? Sometimes economists describe people like farmers as unskilled laborers, but they do have a lot of skills. They do know a lot. There is a lot of knowledge there on a farm. But what are these skills? Chances are you know an awful lot about plants. You can recognize when a plant is um, dehydrated, when it needs more water, it's getting too much water, there's some kind of blight. Chances are you're very familiar with animal husbandry. You know how to shear a sheep or milk a cow, which, you know, you don't just go up to the cow and start milking it and the milk just flows out. It's, there's a technique to it, right? You have to learn it. But how well does milking a cow translate as a skill when you go to the big urban city? There is not a high demand for cow milking in London, right? There's some. There are cows in London at this time period or Berlin or other cities. But there's not a ton of demand for it. And moreover, you have tens of thousands of farmers arriving in these cities more or less at the same time. And so what are you going to do? What can you sell? We mentioned in our podcast on industrialization, the number one source of energy before you know, industrialization fully sets in, the number one source of energy is human energy. So there are plenty of jobs, but the requirement of the job is just to use up your energy. It almost seems like something from The Matrix, or if you've watched the show Black Mirror, there's an episode of Black Mirror, may even be the first episode of Black Mirror, where uh, basically people just run on treadmills. And you run on treadmills, and that's what actually powers the city, gives the, the, you know, all the machines the energy that they need. And so people are just kind of like batteries or almost like kind of horses in a way. But that's how it feels to many of these workers that come to the cities and they get stuck in these menial jobs working in factories where you don't need skills, where you're pulling levers, you're threading power looms, you're shoveling coal. And the most kind of depressing thing about it is that you're completely replaceable. If all you're doing is shoveling coal, it, it doesn't take much technique or much skill to learn how to shovel coal. You have to be very strong. You have to be able to endure it. But I could just fire you and replace you with someone else almost instantly. Right? In a way that if you're a skilled worker, I can't just fire a cobbler or a shoemaker and then just put someone else in that position. They, they need the time to acquire those skills. So a big part of what's going on here, psychologically speaking, is that people feel like they're going from positions where they are valued to positions where they are replaceable. So setting aside all the awful conditions in the city, setting aside the question of, you know, are you, you know, living in a cramped, you know, one-room apartment and, and you don't even have access to a street, there's just a psychological element to this story that is very, very hard for people to adjust to. Now, as if that isn't bad enough, it gets worse. Because one of the things that we believe in, if you believe in capitalism and the free market, we believe in the idea that you sell your labor as part of a market system. So if someone comes to you and they says, I will pay you a penny to work an eight-hour day in my factory, then you kind of laugh at them. You say, I'm not going to work for a penny. Okay, I'll give you $5. No, I'm not working for $5. 
you maybe go up to $15 an hour. That's closer to uh, the minimum wage. I, I work in college. I'm a college professor. I ask my students this all the time. I say, okay, you guys are going to graduate from Furman University. Your families, in many cases, have paid tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for your education. Are you going to take a job that pays $10,000 a year when you graduate? And of course, they all go, no, I'm not taking that job. What about 20000 No, I'm not taking $20,000 a year. Are you crazy? And then we get up to 40, 50, you know, people, more people raise their hands. But the point is that most of you, if not all of you listening to this right now, you have control over your own labor. It is a market. If someone comes and offers you financial compensation for your labor and you don't like the price, then you just say, no, I'm not going to do that. If you own a home and someone, you know, this happens nowadays, you just get these calls. Well, I noticed your home and I'd, I'd like to buy it, right? And they don't really want to give you a fair offer for it. They're going to try to give you a cheap deal. They're going to try to catch people that maybe are just desperate to sell their homes, get it cheap, flip it, make money the easy way. But if you own your home and you're not in dire straits, then you can say, no, I'm not going to sell you my house. I don't want to. So you have control over your labor. The problem for these working class people at the start of the 19th century is that they do not have control over their own labor. If there are 10 other people that are willing to do the same job that you have, and they have the same skill set, more or less, that you have, and they're willing to do it for half of what it costs to pay you, then most bosses are going to fire you and say, well, you know, you're gone. I'll, I'll get the person that's cheaper. And so what begins to happen, especially as you have more and more of these kind of desperate people, is people will accept less and less in terms of pay. So what happens when you have a labor market and the boss says, I need to cut your salary in half, and you can't afford to say no because you know that he can do it, you know that he can get away with it. But if you don't accept it, you're not going to be able to sell your labor for that same price that you want. What happens when the boss says, I'm going to cut your salary to a point that it's so low that you can no longer make ends meet? Now, in today's world, a lot of people would say, well, I would just quit or I would let him fire me. But you have an advantage because we have a social safety net. You have an advantage. If you get fired, in most cases, you can get unemployment insurance, at least for a certain amount of time. If you become destitute, there are welfare programs to help take care of you, help get you back on your feet. Those programs do not exist in Europe in the beginning of the 19th century. When the boss comes and says, I need you to take a starvation wage, and you're faced with either starving or slowly starving, you choose slowly starving. But again, to bring this back to the kind of psychological aspects of what I'm talking about, these people are being told in a kind of pure capitalism, what's called laissez-faire capitalism. So the government doesn't want to get involved really at all in capitalism. This is how things were at the beginning of the 19th century. They're being told it's a free market. Sell your labor, buy, sell, do whatever. Except they don't control their own labor. As one Manchester silk weaver notes, the labor which I might perform this week if I, in imitation of the capitalist, refuse to part with it because an inadequate price is offered me for it, can I bottle it? Can I lay it up in salt? The answer, of course, is no. And so there is a psychological aspect here related to a loss of liberty. 
I should have the right to work when I want to. If I am being forced to work, then am I not a slave? So these people do not have control over their own labor in the same way that most people today do. And I would say almost everyone does today. Okay, so what do we do? What happens when industrialization comes to town and it starts displacing workers, starts driving people out of business? Well, historically speaking, the first response is always violence, right? You're going to go set up some some enterprise that's going to threaten my livelihood. It's going to threaten my village, my welfare. I know what this is like. I know what's going to happen. And so I get together with my friends and we go over and we smash all your power looms. and We say, ha, 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 how do you like it now? There's several examples of this from uh, European history. One of the most common is one known as the Luddite movement, which breaks out in Britain around the year 1811. Now, the, the Luddites are named after this guy, Ned Ludd, who may or may not have really existed. He's kind of a Robin Hood-like figure um, from the late 18th century who goes around and smashes machines. And so the Luddites actually start doing this. Uh, not only do they start breaking machines, but they actually start attacking mill owners. They get into fights with the British army. And eventually they are kind of put down and disbanded. That year 1811, for those of you that know your history, that's a year that Britain is at war with Napoleon. It's before they kind of feel like they've defeated Napoleon. And so as we'll see in a minute, there's some, some draconian kind of responses uh, to these early working class protests about industrialization. The other thing that workers can start to do is they start to realize that there's strength in numbers. If the boss comes to you and he says he's got 100 employees, he says, I'm going to fire two employees so that I can replace them with cheaper labor. There isn't a whole lot of cost to the factory, right? The other 98 employees are still there. They're still doing all the things that they would normally do. You're not really losing a lot in terms of the, the experience and the, the kind of knowledge of how everything operates. The workplace culture isn't really changing. And so there's going to be a minimum of disruption. But on the other hand, if I say I'm going to fire these two people and everyone quits or everyone goes on strike, well, now my factory isn't going to run and I'm going to lose money. And so if I'm going to lose money, now I need to think about, am I going to gain more money by lowering wages? Is it just going to be better to leave well enough alone? And so what we start to see is the beginnings of the first trade unions. Trade unions, they start within the factory. Right, so all the workers in a particular factory get together, say, okay, solidarity, what happens to one happens to all. Or later, what they start doing is realizing, okay, we can band the factories together. Right? So someone might own multiple factories, so you increase the amount of, of pain that you can kind of uh, reflect back on them. Or you have a couple guys that own factories, and so you band together, and now you've got some leverage against them. Now, the way I've described it to you, it sounds very reasonable. It sounds very practical. And of course, this is what we do in many industries today. We have unions. The unions negotiate. They do deals. They don't like the deal. They go on strike. But today, the process is much more peaceful than it was back at the beginning of the 19th century. To go on strike at the beginning of the 19th century, it's not just holding up signs and and saying, hey, hey, ho, ho, you know, something's got to go. Hey, hey, ho, ho, you know, that sort of thing. Or there's always people with like whistles at strikes. And there's always the one guy with the drum and he's beating the drum and they're chanting. Strikes in the 19th centuries are violent affairs. Strikes in the 19th century means we are going to create a picket line 
And the picket line is not just a kind of, okay, this is where we're going to stand. The picket line is a battle line. If you try to cross that picket line, if you try to be a strike breaker, we will mess you up. There will be physical harm reflected on those workers who are trying to break the strike. Consequently, whether it's the governments themselves through police forces or whether you have private agencies, here in the United States, the Pinkerton Agency was uh, responsible for a lot of strike breaking, especially in the second half of the 19th century. They will come in and bust some heads up. It will turn violent. It will turn nasty. So this process of creating trade unions, it is not such an easy, well, we'll just create one. Oh, this is great. Okay, now we've got a union. We start to see the first emergence of these types of things in the second half of the 18th century. Uh, This starts first in Britain, of course, because that's where industrialization first begins. But it will gradually grow into places in France, Belgium, and especially the Rhineland. By the early 1820s, we start to see the creation of national trade unions in the United Kingdom. By the 1850s and 60s, these are pretty commonly spread across the continent. Now, we talked just a second ago about the government and government reactions to these protests. And we noted how the Luddites, obviously, they were using violence. Usually, governments don't like their citizens using violence. There's that famous definition, uh, I believe, by Max Weber about uh, the state having a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. And so, as you might expect, as these kind of nascent socialist movements begin to form, governments tend to be very reactionary against them. In the UK, in 1788, they passed something called the Protection of Stocking Frames Act, which makes destroying a machine a felony. So it is a big deal. It's not just you got drunk with your buddies at the tavern on Saturday night, you thought you'd have a little fun, and you went into the the factory and you broke some machines. It is now a felony to break a machine. Later on during the Napoleonic Wars, this is uh, becoming more and more kind of contentious. They're afraid of the idea of rebellion. And so in 1812, the law is revised, and judges were allowed to make breaking a machine a capital crime. Judge in the UK in 1812, 1813 could say, you intentionally destroyed this power loom, you must now die. Now think about that for a second. We're saying these workers are starving to death. What is more important, the value of a human life or the value of a machine? And at least in England during the Napoleonic Wars, they're saying the value of the machine is more. We see similar developments across the continent. In France, during the initial phase of the revolution, when things are much more sort of democratic, rule of law, Karl Marx would say it's much more bourgeois, um, they passed something called the Le Chapelier Law in 1791. And the Le Chapelier Law, basically it bans guilds, but it also bans workers from striking. The UK will follow with additional acts banning the right of workers to strike. In 1799, this is called the Combination Act, and it is not repealed until 1824. And even then, once it's repealed, it's, it's only sort of like we're going to allow you very, very limited options for going on strike, right? So we're going to so narrowly define it that it's still really, really hard to pull off. Now, contemporary Europeans are not unaware of the difficulties going on here. They see these slums growing, and especially as we get into the 1820s and 1830s and 1840s, there are a number of parliamentary inquiries. There are a number of sort of citizens, factory owners themselves, 
kind of uh, people that are sort of social scientists, or they would be today they would be called as sort of social scientists or social reformers, and they want to get the word out about how bad these conditions are. So someone like a Friedrich Engels, for example, he's basically a German. He's the son of a German textile mill owner. He winds up going to England, and he, he's in a mill that is owned by his family up there. And he writes this expose about what life is like for the working classes. It's called The Condition of the Working Classes. So as there's more awareness of the problems going on, there becomes these sort of rise of socialist movements that then try to address these problems. We're going to talk about four different groups of socialists, including later on Karl Marx, of course. The first group of these socialists that we want to discuss are called the utopian socialists. Now, I want to take a minute to to just say a comment about this name utopian, because if I say that you're utopian, that's usually not compliment, right? If we were thinking about, you know, I said I work at Furman University, what what, we're going to come up with a new sort of um, marketing slogan. I said, okay, we're going to be called the utopian university. And very few people would want to send their kids to utopian university, right? Because utopian sounds well-meaning, but it also sounds impractical. And so it's worth noting that this term that historians use, utopian socialists, it is not a term that is invented or used by the people that we call utopian socialists. It's not their label for themselves. It's a label that's developed by Karl Marx and some of his followers. And it's a way of kind of saying, you people aren't very serious. You people, we can just ignore you. Perhaps a better way of describing these people is to say that they are optimistic socialists. When they look at the world around them, they don't see this kind of Manichaean struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and and all that. That hasn't come yet. They are optimistic in the sense that they believe that science and technology can be used to overcome social problems. So if we have these crises that are being generated by industrialization, the answer is to be more rational. The answer is to think it through. The answer is to use the emerging kind of enlightenment philosophy And and let's try to rationalize and game plan through solutions. These utopian socialists, as I mentioned, they're not really believers in the idea of class conflict. They don't really have a political platform. They don't really even have a coherent ideology. They just kind of are, we might even say do-gooders, right? They, They look at the world and they say, hmm, maybe we can make a change, make things better. So a great example of a utopian socialist would be someone like Robert Owen. Owen is basically a Welsh textile magnate, and he buys this uh, mill at a place called New Lanark in Scotland in 1799. And once he owns the mill, he says, wow, this is actually pretty horrible for a lot of the workers involved. Perhaps instead of just exploiting my workers and trying to make the most amount of profit possible, maybe I can take a humane approach to employment. And so he actually undertakes a number of reforms just on his own. He says, look, the factory, the people are working at the factory 11 and three quarter hours per day. That's a lot of work. I'm going to give them an extra hour off per day. If you work for me, you're only going to have to work 10 and three quarters hours. Another thing he does is he says, look, I know a lot of uh, people that own factories, they actually set up sort of um, stores on site. A lot of the people used to live very close to the factories because obviously you're working an 11 and three quarters hour day. You're doing that six days a week. That's, that's a lot of work. You're not going to w- want to live very far away from the factory. And so one of the things they did is they put l- little community stores in and they would sell goods and, and things to the workers 
but they would also kind of in make the workers fall into debt. So then the workers can't leave and you, you have total control over them. So Owen said, hey, I'm going to stop this practice. I'm actually going to try to supply my employees with cheaper and better goods. He says, I'm going to create an infant education center. I'm going to call it the Institute for the Formation of Character. But I am going to give my workers, maybe not directly themselves, but their families an opportunity to move up the social ladder. If you think about what are the skills one needs to work in what we might call a white-collar position today, to get a job working maybe as a clerk, maybe as an accountant, you need to be literate. You need to be able to do uh, basic mathematics. And so Owen, in 1816, creates this Institute for the Formation of Character as a way of, again, helping the working classes improve their own lives. He also makes uh, new living quarters for them. Uh, if you go to New Lanark today, this has all become a museum. You can see how everything is, is kind of uh, laid out. You can see Robert Owen's house. He actually had a house that he maintained on the property. This is very different than a lot of these mill owners who tend to live in different parts of the city, far away from all the, the pollution and the smoke and the noise of their own factories. Now, Owen goes a bit further. Uh, basically, by the beginning of the 1820s, He's become convinced that classic liberalism's emphasis on individualism has basically created a system of exploitation. And so he kind of sets out to replace what he calls the individual system with the social system. He proposes that they basically take poor people and they relocate them to these cooperative villages that will have about 2,000 people in the village. And here everybody's going to rotate around, so... Yes, you'll have to do some industrial work because we have industrial goods that we need to make, but you'll also spend some time farming. You'll spend some time raising kids. All the property is to be owned communally, and all the different residents will share in the benefits that are created by industrialization. So it's almost kind of like a kibbutz. If you're familiar with uh, Israel or Israeli society, you can go to a kibbutz in Israel, and it's kind of a commune. And so Owen actually puts his money where his mouth is, so to speak. In 1824, he purchases a small village in Indiana, and he calls it New Harmony. Unfortunately, he makes some uh, poor business decisions. Things don't go so well. And in 1828, New Harmony is actually closed. But you get the idea, right? We're, we're just going to try to make things better. Now, the utopian socialists, there are some that are somewhat utopian, right? We're talking about creating communes. We're talking about everybody collectively owning everything, sharing the workload. So there are some utopian elements to this story. So probably the best example of a utopian would be another uh, thinker. His name was Charles Fourier. He was French. And he lived basically at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And he was a psychologist. And so Fourier spent a lot of time thinking about what is wrong with society right now? What is the emotional state how can we improve people's emotional well-being? And so he came up with this brilliant theory that there should be no difference between our desires and our ability to meet those desires. Which, okay, yeah, I mean, why are people unhappy? Because they didn't get what they wanted. Giving people what they want doesn't necessarily fix that problem, though. But Fourier wanted to sort of, again, solve this problem. He's a psychologist. And so what he does is kind of fascinating. He tries to map out 
all the different types of human personalities that exist. He actually comes up with 810 different distinct personalities. And once he's kind of mapped all this out, he says, okay, we just need to put these people all together. We'll have one man and one woman, each with one of these personalities. So we'll have 1620 total. We'll put them all together and they'll have, again, this communal type work, this communal type lifestyle. And people will basically just do what they want because we figured out, okay, there's, you know, some people like working in the garden. Some people like nature. Some people like digging, you know, okay. So so if that's me, then I'm going to go work in the garden. Maybe I'll cook some. Some people like tinkering with stuff. Okay, you guys are going to be the carpenters. Some people like working with kids. Don't worry, okay? You're going to collectively raise the children. That'll be your job. Of course, the problem is that not every job is something that someone wants to do, right? Who wants to empty the chamber pot and be the nightman? Who wants to shovel the, the human waste? There's not really anybody that is going to say, I, I really enjoy that, right? That's not one of these 810 personalities. So Fourier basically waits for someone to embrace this idea, to fund it, uh, but it never actually happens. Okay, so there's other names that we could mention. There's a lot of people involved in this kind of utopian socialism, especially at the very beginning of the 19th century. We don't want to spend too much time on them, though. Um, If you're curious, you could look up Saint-Simon or Louis Blanc from France. Those are a couple early socialists, uh, utopian socialists, but there's others. But, you know, let's, let's move on. Now, the second group of socialists that historians usually talk about are the so-called scientific socialists. And of course, if we're talking about someone who's a scientific socialist, that sounds like someone that really knows what they're doing, right? We tend to associate science with the idea of accuracy or truth. And so if I'm a scientific socialist, and unlike those foolish utopian guys over there that are well-meaning, but, but are kind of silly, the scientific socialists have figured everything out. Now, of course, you won't be surprised to note that this is also kind of a marketing label. The people that describe themselves as scientific socialists are the circle again around Karl Marx, because they're trying to say, look, our socialism is, is based on science and reason, and, and it's true. We might better call this group the philosophical socialists, because one of the things that we're going to see is that their system, their understanding of the world is really based more on the idea of philosophy than it is on sort of studies. You know, today, if they were going to say, okay, well, you know, what's what's the situation like in a workplace? We'd say, okay, we're going to be social scientists. We might be sociologists. So they're not doing that sort of thing. Karl Marx is not wandering around the factory floor trying to get a sense of, okay, what is actually going on here, right? Karl Marx is in his study. He's reading uh, philosophers. He's reading Hegel, Feuerbach and some other people that I'll I'll just explain in a moment. Now, of course, the big name, as I just mentioned, is Karl Marx, right? When we think of socialism, uh, you know, if we were playing Family Feud, names you associate with socialism, Karl Marx would always be the first name on the list. So let's take a moment just to kind of talk more specifically about Karl Marx, who he is, and what some of his ideas were. Karl Marx was born in the western German city of Trier in 1818. And as a young man, he was, as I said, very fascinated by the idea of philosophy. He is much more interested as a young man in philosophy than he is with economics. And to be honest, Germany in the 1820s and 1830s, it's really one of the hotspots, if you will, of places to be for philosophic thought, right? You say, oh, maybe I'd like to be in you know, Athens around the time of, of Socrates or Aristotle or, or Plato. 
But Germany in the 1820s and 1830s is full of great philosophy, uh, especially, as I mentioned, this guy, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and the circle that kind of surrounds him and then kind of descends from him, uh, which become known as the Young Hegelians. So Marx, as I said, he's interested in philosophy. He completes his PhD in philosophy in 1843, and he gets his first job working in the city of Cologne as the editor for a newspaper called the Rheinische Zeitung. And here, it's kind of a radical uh, paper. It's kind of very working class oriented. Um, And one of the things Marx does is he makes the mistake of criticizing some policies that were being implemented by the Prussian government. He's then expelled from Cologne, and he spends the years 1844 to 1848 in exile in Brussels and Paris. And then later on, after 1848, he'll actually be in London for a while too. So he kind of moves around a lot. Um, You know, again, this kind of exiled intellectual, if you will. It is while he is in this moment of exile in Brussels and Paris that he comes into contact with the direct effects of industrialization, which is in the 1840s, it's only really sort of starting in Germany. Germany is not going to heavily industrialized until more the 1860s, 70s, especially the first decades of the German Empire. He also meets this other German guy named Friedrich Engels, which we talked about, the condition of the working classes. This is in 1844. And the two of them begin this kind of lifelong friendship, collaboration. Uh, Engels basically supports uh, Marx as well financially. And so in February of 1848, they publish this kind of manifesto, this little pamphlet called the Communist Manifesto. And the most important thing from that is not actually its, its impact, but it is the, the, it lays the kind of basic formulation for Marx's theory and Marx's way of thinking. We might say it's the initial expression of Mar- Marx's philosophy and the ideological foundations for a large number of future socialists. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time getting into Marx and, and the philosophy and where it comes from, but I do want to just kind of lay out the basic dynamics of it so you understand why Marx is thinking the things that he's thinking. As I said, Germany in the 1820s and 30s is really dominated by this interest in the philosophies of Hegel. And one of the things that Hegel kind of argues is that history is not just random acts happening or, uh, you know, certain people rising, people falling, but that there is a direction to history. And there is kind of a spirit, if you will, that animates history. And so basically what history is is it's the process of this thing called the absolute spirit or the divine spirit as it moves through time. Now, the way that the spirit moves through time is, again, not just random, but it follows these kind of patterns. And so there will be a sort of dominant principle, a dominant sort of organizational way of approaching things, and that becomes known as the thesis. But over time, there's inevitably a reaction to something, right? When there's a trend in culture, people say, oh, we really like this thing. It gets really super popular. And then after a while, some people start to say, you know what? I want to do something different. I'm going to be the opposite, right? You, you love your big sunglasses, the, you know, the ones that are like as big as, as half your face. Guess what? I'm going original 1999 Matrix style, the really thin sunglasses, the Oakleys, until those become popular. Right, so those are going to fight it out. We have so that's called the antithesis. So in the Hegelian system, we have the, the thesis and the antithesis, and they fight with each other and they struggle with each other until there's some sort of resolution and one side wins. And that side that wins then becomes known as the synthesis, 
or then it eventually becomes the new thesis. So all of this is called the dialectic, and this is how history operates according to uh, Hegel. And we'll see in a second why this is so important for understanding Karl Marx. Marx takes this idea of the dialectic. He borrows some ideas from some of the other philosophers of the time period, especially a guy named Ludwig Feuerbach. And he says, look, the Hegelian system, it's not just random things going on. It is based primarily on economics. Economics is the key that explains every other thing going on in the world. So in a kind of narrow Marxist sort of understanding, why do you like the clothing that you like? It's because of your class background. Why do you like the sports that you like? It's because of your class background. Everything derives from the means of production and class consciousness, according to Karl Marx. Now, applying this kind of idea of the dialectic to history, and specifically the history of economics, what Marx basically argues is that in the early modern period, when we started our course, the dominant thesis was feudalism. The dominant way that people produced things and and created wealth was by owning land and through agriculture. But over the course of time, Marx would argue, basically you have this rising merchant class, this group that we're going to call the bourgeoisie, and I'll explain them in a second. And the, the bourgeoisie wants to make wealth through owning things. The bourgeoisie wants to make wealth through trading, through exploiting the workers. They want a financial world. They want a world where we've got cash, money, and we're trading, and we're building, and we're selling. We don't want all these restrictions that come with feudalism. We don't want to live in a corporate society. We want capitalism. We want pure, and for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, by corporate society, I mean the idea that that you're belonging, your identity, your possibilities are all predetermined by your place of birth, your your status, and you're just supposed to stay in that group. So what begins to happen, according to Marx, is the two fight it out, and eventually we get the French Revolution. The bourgeoisie, who are, again, these people that kind of, they make their wealth by owning things. They're not people that are doing things. They're not small, uh, you know, shopkeepers. They're not artisans that are producing things. They're people that basically make money just by owning things. But if you think today about stockbrokers, you think about people that just hedge fund managers and things like that, they just own stuff and they make money just through the fact that they own stuff. That's what the the true definition is of someone who's a member of the bourgeoisie. Marx says, okay, we, we had the French Revolution. We have a couple other revolutions that happened in France afterwards. Eventually, by 1848, capitalism has won. This kind of uh, liberalism has won. And we are basically headed into a new phase where we're going to have the bourgeoisie being the thesis and the new proletariat, the working classes, are going to be the antithesis. Because one of the problems, Marx argues, is that capitalism rests on exploitation. Capitalism rests on generating value. And the way that we generate value, according to Marx, is you exploit your workers. I own a factory. I take all the kind of uh, positive energy, the creative energy from all of my employees, and I, I sell whatever they produce, and then I take a large cut of it, and then I give the rest back to them. It's almost like I say, you bake me a pie, I take the pie, I take half the pie for myself, and then I give you back the rest and say, okay, you, you take half the pie and share that with everyone else. 
So Marx argues that over the course of time, because capitalism is so exploitative, because it is so repressive, people that are getting abused by it will begin to gain what he would call class consciousness. They will begin to become aware of the fact that they are being exploited, they will get angry about it, and they will, again, start to to marshal these forces in opposition to it. Marx would add that basically capitalism is also cannibalizing. You have factory owners. They aren't just competing necessarily with their workers, but they're competing with each other. They're trying to develop economies of scale, right? They're trying to put each other out of business. And so what happens when the CEO gets fired from his job and he's out of business? Well, if he sinks down far enough, he too or she too might get class consciousness. Of course, there really aren't CEOs in this period. I'm using more modern language just so you understand kind of what the system looks like. So Marx puts all this together. He says, I you know, can see what's going on. I see the class conflict. I know how history operates. Not only can I just sort of say that this is the moment that we're in now, but I can actually predict the future. The future is going to be these workers of the world. They're going to unite. They're going to create a dictatorship of the proletariat. And they're going to make the world wonderful and perfect. Which is kind of funny, because the way I just described it, that sounds very utopian, right? But remember, Marx is not a utopian socialist. He's a scientific socialist. Okay, as I mentioned before, Marx and Engels are not the only socialist game in town. And they are not only competing against the kind of utopian uh, fringe, kind of Charles Fourier type of uh, attitude. Another type of communism that grows up, especially in the middle to the end of the 19th century, is a belief in the idea of anarchism. And anarchism is basically the belief that all problems of exploitation in the modern world are caused by government. If you want to fix the situation, just eliminate the government. And if you get rid of it, then everything will kind of revert to this organic state of nature and everything will be perfect, and and we don't really have to worry about building anything. It just all naturally resets. So anarchists, therefore, target people like kings, presidents, bankers, right? people with power, and they basically think, okay, if we assassinate them, then everything will go our way and, and everything will be restored. And in the 19th century, they actually are very successful. They kill President William McKinley here in the United States, and a whole host of other people that I'm, I don't have time to, uh, to get into. If you want an example of an, an anarchist, someone that, that you know, could be a rival to Marx, and in some ways was a rival to Marx, I would mention the Russian uh, Mikhail Bakunin. Bakunin was born on an estate northwest of Moscow, and he met Marx and other socialist philosophers in the 1840s, and he becomes a socialist. But instead of becoming sort of a philosopher, Bakunin wants to get together with the workers. He wants to be on the factory floor. He wants to organize them, and he wants to foment rebellion. Uh, Probably a a nice kind of way to think about him is if he's, think about someone like Marx, but if Marx acted like Che Guevara, right? So kind of less romantic, kind of more portly, you know, got the big wild beard uh, type of guy who's going to go around from country to country and try to foster rebellion. That's Mikhail Bakunin. Bakunin was fairly influential, Uh, but in 1872, as we'll see in a moment, they're starting to develop a kind of international socialist organization. They're trying to collaborate across boundaries, you know, the whole idea of the workers of the world uniting. 
And one of the things that happens is that Bakunin and Marx get into a huge fight at this place called the International. And that fight is basically over the notion of the state. Karl Marx says, look, we need a dictatorship of the proletariat. We need to supervise the means of production. We need a state in order to get to the place that we want to get to. Bakunin says the state itself is the problem. doesn't matter if you're a communist state or a capitalist state or whatever. The state itself is the problem. And so he has this great quote, I think, uh, about Marx. He says, Marx is, quote, ruining the workers by making theorists out of them. Bakunin is kind of like, let's just skip this whole class consciousness phase. Let's, let's skip the whole uh, you know, dictatorship of the proletariat. Let's proceed directly to the revolution and don't worry about it because organically things will work themselves out. Another anarchist name that we could throw out there, um, and for fans of Monty Python, you, uh, you might like to know this. His name is Peter Kropotkin, spelled like Peter Kropotkin. And he's basically a Russian scientist who comes up with the idea of the anarcho-commune. The anarcho-commune is this idea where people collectively own the means of production and they practice direct democracy in order to make decisions. Now, direct democracy, for those of you that don't remember, is the idea that we don't really have these, these, you know, we're voting for politicians and they're, you know, making decisions on our behalf. Direct democracy is the idea that we have maybe some, some representatives, but we literally go tell them this is what we want, and then they immediately do it. And so direct democracy tends to function through workers, councils, or later on, sometimes they'll add sailors, sometimes they'll add soldiers. But it's kind of like if all the ordinary people got together and they had a big meeting, what would they decide to do? That's where the power is. Now, of course, you are familiar in some ways with this concept because this became known as a Soviet. And so later on, when we talk about the development of the Soviet Union, why is it called the Soviet Union? Because they seize power in the name of these Soviets. By the way, for those of you that are kind of scratching your head and going, what does this have to do with Monty Python? Um, if you listen to the first episode of this series, we played a scene from Monty Python and the, and the Quest for the Holy Grail. And uh, basically, there's these peasants, and they're arguing with King Arthur. Um, and one of the things the peasants say is that they live on an anarcho-syndicalist commune. Right? So they're directly invoking the idea of anarchism, except they're medieval peasants. And so it's an anachronism, and that's why the joke is funny. Okay, enough about these early socialist intellectuals. Um, as I said before, it's easy to get caught up in discussions of this type. And we really don't want to forget about Fantine. We don't want to forget about those workers who are the, the kind of the basis, the foundation, if you will, of socialism. It's not because Karl Marx is sitting there in his study thinking about, you know, what does the uh, means of production do in, in the bourgeoisie? It's about the human suffering that these people were experiencing. And when we last spoke about them, uh, basically what we noted was that they were beginning to form trade unions as a way to balance power against the factory owners. Now, this process continues to grow across the 19th century. And in some ways, it actually intersects with another development going on that's really kind of critical to the, the growth of socialism as a political force, not just as an economic force. And I'm talking here about the push for increasing democratization in many European countries. We mostly live in democracies right now. We mostly embrace the idea that there should be voting, that the people have a say 
in the government. But that was not always the case. The beginning of the 19th century, even in countries where you do have some kind of democratic element, you do have some kind of legislature operating like a parliament in Britain, the people that can vote tend to be only people that own property or people that own a large amount of property. In some cases, only people that pay a certain amount of taxes get the right to vote. And so what we start to see are these large popular movements demanding more say for ordinary people in normal politics. Now, a great example of this is something called the Chartist Movement, which develops in England in the 1830s. Now, at the time, most politics are dominated by aristocrats. If you watch any of the the many movies or TV series about someone like Queen Victoria, the people that are in charge of politics are the Duke of Wellington, Lord Melbourne, right? There are all these lords and, and things like that, sirs. But this is beginning to change. Over the course of the 1820s, there are increasing complaints about the English parliamentary system. And there's good reason for this. They're kind of a mess, right? We live in a world where we think, okay, most legislative districts should be about the same size. Here in the United States, according to the Constitution, every 10 years, we have to do a census, and they have to redraw the boundaries of these districts so that things are fairly even. But in the Britain of the 1820s, you have some districts that only have 100 voters in them. You have others that have 20,000 voters in them. Only one out of 15 adult male Britons in the 1820s has the right to vote. And so what we start to see are the formation of political unions. A political union, it's not quite a party yet, but it's the idea that we are going to organize and agitate for political rights. And so what begins to happen is, again, we have these sort of large demonstrations demanding reform. Uh, to make a long story very short, in Britain, this, this culminates in the Reform Act of 1832. The Reform Act will enlarge the franchise slightly. It will now be one in every five adult Englishmen able to vote, so it's getting a little bit better. But still, 80% of Englishmen cannot vote, and 100% of English women cannot vote. So basically, in 1836, a cabinet maker named William Lovett begins a movement dedicated to advancing the rights of working-class people. In 1838, he publishes, along with some others, a list of demands known as the People's Charter. It calls for a number of reforms, uh, among them universal male suffrage, the secret ballot, the removal of property requirements to hold office, and a salary for members of parliament. And it's not hard to see why people might want that, right? If you are a working class guy, you probably don't want your boss to know who you're voting for. If you are a working class guy and you want to run for office, you better be getting a salary. Because if you're not getting a salary, then you're not going to be able to do that because you'll starve to death. So again, to make a kind of long story short, these charters become very popular. They get over 3 million signatures at one point for one of these petitions. And they come to Parliament and they say, here's this petition. Here's what the people want. And Parliament says, we're not interested. Eventually, riots break out. The leaders of the movement uh, are rejected, and there's really a fear running all the way up into 1848 that this is going to be the English version of the French Revolution, that you have this mass of workers, they're incredibly unhappy, and it's just a matter of time before they revolt and burn everything down. Now, 
Fortunately or unfortunately, that doesn't happen. After 1848, the movement kind of peters out. But it symbolizes one of the ways that working class frustrations were beginning to be channeled into calls for political change. The epilogue to the story is that in 1867, there is yet another Reform Act passed, and eventually by 1918, we will get to full suffrage. But it takes a long time. It takes almost 100 years of basically them agitating for political change. We actually see a very similar pattern playing out in other countries across Europe. In Prussia, for example, you, uh, you have a similar movement that is unleashed by the 1848 revolution. The monarchy kind of collapses, or at least the authority of the monarchy collapses. And in that vacuum steps 230 trade unions with over 15,000 members. And so this, this group of trade unions, they will come to Frankfurt, where the German National Convention is meeting, and they will form the General German Workers' Brotherhood in July of 1848. Like the Chartist movement, this Workers' Brotherhood demands things like universal male suffrage. They want a minimum wage. They want the right to freely organize. We mentioned how that was not a widely accepted right in the beginning of the 19th century. And they actually borrow a page from the French socialist book. They want self-help programs to assist workers in need. Now, ultimately, these demands are rejected. Ultimately, the Prussian king is able to marshal his forces. The revolution kind of falls apart. And socialism becomes repressed in Prussia, basically up until the formation of, of Germany in 1871. And then again, from 1878 to 1890, there are some very specific laws uh, designed to target and repress socialists. Now, the Prussian king is aware that things are building up in terms of steam, in terms of the population wanting a say in politics. And so one of the things he does is he introduces a Prussian diet that will have a three-tiered system of voting. So basically he says, I'm going to divide all the seats in the parliament into thirds. And each third is then going to correspond to the number of people that pay a third of the taxes. So a third of the people that pay the taxes vote for one third of the delegates. The sort of second third of people that pay for the taxes pay for the second one. And everybody else gets lumped into the third one. So it's kind of set up, obviously, to, to help and, and to protect the interests of the wealthy. The German Workers Association is disbanded. Its leaders are generally repressed. So in the short run, this fails. As we'll see in a second, in the long run, however, it's actually more successful. One of the things that the Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck does in the 1860s, as he is kind of laying out the blueprints for a German state, first with the formation of the uh, North German Confederation, and then later on with the actual creation of a German state, he wants popular support for it. He wants basically popular support for what's really sort of Prussian expansion. And so the way he's going to do that, the way he's going to win over large members of the working classes, is he creates a parliament and he introduces universal male suffrage. Now, the parliament is not the dominant force. The king still retains quite a bit of power. But we're moving more and more towards that direction of increasing democratization, at least for men. Right? We'll get to the beginnings of the 20th century when we finally start to see that becoming more equal in terms of gender. This German workers' movement, even though it is repressed, does not go away. In 1863, 
They refound it. They call it the General German Workers Association. It's led by a lawyer named Ferdinand LaSalle. And it becomes the first explicitly worker-oriented political party in modern European history. So we're going to move beyond just kind of ideas that are out there. We're going to move beyond uh, unions and trade unions whose ideas are basically economically focused. And now we are going to start seeing socialism become more and more overtly political. In 1869, there is a second, more radical socialist party formed by August Bebel and Wilhelm Liebknecht. This is known as the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Germany. And basically, these two parties will merge in 1875. Parties say, look, we have a lot in common. Maybe we we disagree a little bit about means. We disagree a little bit about the use of violence. But more or less, we agree on, on most things. We have the same values. We have the same kind of background. Let us work together and let us form an explicit political party that then becomes one of Germany's largest. By the time that the anti-socialist laws get lifted, the SPD, or the Social Democratic Party of Germany, as it's now known, is one of the major parties. And in fact, on the eve of World War I, they were Germany's largest party. And of course, they still exist today. Um, They're still very powerful, uh, although they've waned a little bit in the last couple of years. Now, having just mentioned this kind of political socialism, which is the kind of the, the fourth bucket, if you will, of socialists that we're talking about, I do want to say a word about Karl Marx, because Marx and Marxism, we think about it as being very clear today. We think about Marx being synonymous with communism. If I say communism, you have a very clear sense, perhaps, of what that means. But it's worth noting that in the 19th century, while there's common acceptance of Marx or a lot of enthusiasm for Marx, how far you're willing to take Marx varies depending on who you are. Right? So one of the things that the Gotha program calls for, this is the, the place basically in 1875 when they found the SPD, it calls for universal suffrage, freedom of association, limits on the number of hours in the working day, and other laws that are related basically to the health and the well-being of workers. There's nothing here about abolishing private property, getting rid of money, taking ownership of the means of production. Right, so when we think of those kind of hardcore Bolshevik ideas, the things that the, the Bolsheviks, that Lenin and Stalin and them, that they wanted to carry out, those people exist and there are people that support those ideas, but there are also people that want to work within the existing political system. The SPD is not explicitly trying to overthrow capitalism, although there are some members of the SPD who do want to do that. So basically, some people today, when we talk about socialism, they want to draw a distinction between socialism and communism, or they might say democratic socialism and communism. And as we'll see, there are very real differences between the two things. That understanding, however, that there is a real distinction between the two does not happen until World War I. These people that are involved in these movements get along very well together, even if their ultimate ideas do have some deviations. Okay, I just want to touch very briefly on France uh, here. There's, There's too much to go into about 1848 and what happens. But the short version is that you also have a revolution in France in 1848. It's one of the few successful revolutions. And it is led by both people that are sort of what we might call bourgeois or middle class as well as people that are working class. And so one of the reasons that they work together 
is that the working class uh, sort of people, they're led by a guy named Louis Blanc, and they push through a guarantee of a right to employment. Basically, the state is going to set up these things called national workshops, and these workshops guarantee the unemployed jobs. So if I'm unemployed, I just go to the workshop and they say, oh, okay, you know, I know that this, uh, this guy over here, the baker, Mr. Uh, Lavalier, he's, he's trying to build a new uh, extension to his bakery. Uh, just go there and he'll give you a job and, and you can work there. As you might expect, this works well when the economy is doing well, but once the economy kind of contracts, once it goes into a recession, then there's way too many people looking for jobs. And when I say, wait a minute, you guaranteed me the right to work, and yet you don't have a job for me, well, now we have problems. So there's a second revolution that happens in late June, but the French army actually puts this down, and the workers' kind of phase of dominating things goes away. Anyway, to again, to make this long story short, basically what happens is they set up a presidential election, and that presidential election will be with universal male suffrage. We'll get into the story of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte and the 1848 revolutions more in our next podcast because he's really, really important to understand the growth of nationalism and some of the fundamental changes that happens in, uh, in the growth of nationalist consciousness in the middle of the 19th century. Last thing I want to say just about these, these socialists, and then I have kind of one more broad comment about culture. Um, we should also note that they try to set up international organizations whose job it will be to coordinate and to encourage socialism across borders. If we went to the first meeting of the International Workingmen's Association, which is often referred to as the first international, one of the things that we would see there is not just Karl Marx, not just Bakunin, but we would also meet lots of Irish nationalists, Italian nationalists, Polish nationalists. There would be French and English socialists, but socialists who are kind of followers of Robert Owen, and more moderate trade unionists, radicals, it would be a, a kind of whole hodgepodge of different people that, that really their common idea is just kind of revolution in many ways. So in 1872, as we noted, they, they get together again, they have this meeting, there's a big fight about the anarchists. Marx succeeds in having Bakunin kicked out of the movement, kind of saying, you're not a real socialist, you're an anarchist, they're different. And so both groups kind of go about their separate ways. Um, the first international kind of breaks down. They try to bring it back in 1889. Again, it'll break down right around World War I. So these international communist organizations, they kind of struggle until you have the Soviet Union who will kind of host it, fund it, grow it, give it, give it a place to live, so to speak. So having said all this about all these four groups of socialists, it's worth noting that one of the things that happens across the 19th century is that as ordinary people begin to have a greater say in politics, the idea of using government to regulate or control the worst excesses of industrialization basically becomes increasingly common. In England, for example, in 1833, they pass a law forbidding child labor under the age of nine. Now, most of us today would say, well, that's, you know, that's like the very least that you could do, but it's a start. And as the, the kind of steam builds up, as the pressure builds up because of movements like chartism, because of these trade unions, we start to see more and more regulation. In 1842, again in England, the first successful coal mine regulations are passed. They ban the underground employment of women, girls and boys under the age of 10. In 1847, they pass a new act limiting the workday to 10 hours. Now think about that. That's almost an hour less than what Robert Owen 
voluntarily reduced his workforce to. So even in countries where you don't really have a lot of democratization going on, you can get into debates about how democratic Germany was. There's some arguments that it's, it's certainly not meaningless, these elections that are going on. But even in a place like Prussia and later Germany, the champion of things like universal male suffrage, health, accident, and work insurance in the early 1880s, the champion is none other than the arch-conservative Otto von Bismarck. So even in countries where you don't have true functioning democracies by the end of the 19th century, you still get the regulations. Right? The political leadership still sees the value in trying to answer these demands from working class people. Okay, so we started this podcast again with me saying that it was important to remember the Fontines of the world and not to get lost in theory and politics. And of course, after a little bit over an hour, here we are, and I've been talking about theory and politics. So I want to end the episode by bringing things back to ordinary people, and especially the idea of everyday life. Because while these theorists and political parties are clearly important to the story, there's another element to it beyond political programs, laws, reforms, economics, wages. And that's the cultural element. That's the thing that most people experience every day as part of this transition, this growth of, of socialism. What I'm talking about here is identity, about the way that we as individuals think about who we are and what our values are. And as we'll see for millions of Europeans, becoming a socialist isn't so much a political declaration. It's not about becoming a member of a party, voting in elections. Although obviously there, there is a dimension to that. Some people do become involved in politics. But it's worth noting that a big part of it is a cultural transformation. It's beginning to see yourself as someone that is working class. Beginning to understand that being working class has some kind of meaning. If I said, okay, all the people that are right-handed out there, you, you belong in a particular group, you're the right-handeds, and all the people that are left-handed, you're out there, you're the left-handeds, yeah, okay, that's a group, that's an identity, but it's meaningless. No one really cares about that. No one's looking around going, are you right-handed or are you left-handed? You don't make decisions based on whether or not someone is, is really right or left-handed, maybe where you're going to sit or what kind of desk you're going to have, but that's about it. But class identity becomes something that people care an awful lot about in the 19th century. Class identity, especially working class identity, becomes a point of pride. People living in a place like Berlin or Milan or Vienna in the 1860s and 1870s in these working class neighborhoods, they are proud to be workers. They celebrate the idea what do we do? Well, we do things with our hands. We're the salt of the earth. We're the tough guys. Right? If, if you go around to various professions, think about some of the hardest professions in places like the United States today, something like coal mining. Yeah, there are some people there that don't want to be coal miners. But there are also people that are proud of being coal miners, that look at it as a challenge and say, look, this is the hard work that we do. We keep the economy going, keep the, the energy flowing. We perform the same tasks that our ancestors performed. There's a value in it beyond just the paycheck we get. There is an identity. And so when we're talking about having a working class identity, this is something that is new. 
This is something that is emerging across the 19th century. So how do we get there? Well, one of the developments that we've spoken a little bit about as these socialist movements become more organized, they also get repressed by existing political authorities. So what happens when you have these political thoughts, you want to comment on the economic situation, on the political situation, but you can't. You can't have an official party meeting. Your newspaper gets banned. Your editor, like Karl Marx, gets kicked out of the country. What do you do when your union or your right to strike is banned? Do you just give up? You just say, oh, well, you know, they got us. Too bad. Ha ha. Of course not. You find ways to carry out politics by another means. And this is essentially what happens across the middle to the end of the 19th century. Socialism, working class politics, moves from formal political spaces to domestic and social ones. You discuss these types of issues on the workshop floor when the boss isn't there. You talk about them in the pub or the tavern afterwards. And eventually, you start forming civic organizations who are not explicitly political, but which provide a space for being political. So you and all your working class buddies in the 19th century, you would have belonged, perhaps, to a choral society. But that choral society isn't just the people that happen to live in your neighborhood. It's the people from your workplace. Maybe you join a gymnastics club. If we're talking about towards the end of the 19th century, you might join a soccer club or a cycling association. The cycling association in the beginning is not explicitly political, but it becomes so because all the people in it are sharing in these working class identities and they begin to surround themselves with working class or socialist symbols and expressions of their values. This is how socialism survives in hostile environments. You don't go to the soccer game to talk politics, but while you're at the soccer game, you start talking about politics. Now, as I just mentioned, one key consequence of this development is that people don't just talk in these spaces, but they begin to populate them with symbols that reflect their values. We're talking about working class clothing. We're talking about red caps and banners. Think about the songs that you sing. You're going to sing songs like John Henry. You're going to sing about this, this working class guy and he gets replaced by a machine and he's fighting against it. Eventually, the names of these clubs will begin to reflect an explicit political or working class identity. You're going to belong to something like the Red Cavalry or the Pioneers or the Red Hussars of the Class Struggle. You might join a soccer team or you might become a fan of a soccer team. Some of you out there might be familiar with a team called SK Rapid Wien or Rapid Vienna in English. Did you know that its original name, translated, was the first Viennese worker football club? Now, who do you think the fan base is for the first Viennese worker football club? Who's going to sit in the stands and watch that game? It is probably not the chairman of the local bank. It is probably not a doctor or a lawyer. It is going to be working class people. And they're going to view the success of that team against other teams as part of the class struggle. 
you can still see elements of this, vestiges of working class culture today in many European countries. Uh, in Germany, for example, you'll notice a lot of the railroad workers wear these like blue overalls. It looks kind of like a uniform. And it is a uniform, but it's not a uniform in the sense that, well, you have to put this on because you're working class and we're going to stigmatize you. If you talk to some of those workers, it is a sense of pride. When you go to the, the pub or the tavern or the kneipe afterwards, and you're all there with your buddies, you know you're working class. Somebody else comes in, they oh, this person's suit and tie. They're not working class. They're not one of us. Maybe they come in and they are wearing an overall. Maybe it's a different color overall. Maybe they're in a different trade, but you know they're working class. I mentioned before, they have other symbols like red flags, banners, songs like the Internationale, which is written in 1871 in France, but uh, becomes kind of globalized. It actually was the anthem of the Soviet Union before World War II. Later in the 19th century, you have a lot of political propaganda, and that political propaganda will include images of things like linked hands. Uh, they also love the hammer. But if you think about hammer, hammers are heavy, got to be strong, working class guy to use a big industrial hammer. It's very masculine. They love masculine imagery uh, as well. There's these working class movements, um, very, very gendered at times. After May of 1889, they actually create a new holiday. It's called May Day. We get together, we'll have a parade, we'll have a march, we'll celebrate working class culture, and we'll celebrate working class identity. And if you've been to Europe today, on almost every country, May the 1st is their equivalent of Labor Day. May the 1st is a public holiday, and it is a holiday specifically for working class people. These types of rituals are ways that workers learn a working class identity. I go to the May Day Parade, I participate in it, I put on paraphernalia that, that says, you know, I'm okay, I'm, I'm working class, got my, my little hat on, I'm carrying my banner saying, you know, hussars, uh, red hussars of the class struggle, whatever. Might have some portraits of Karl Marx or Friedrich Engels there. But we advertise and celebrate our identities, and in this case, you have people by the end of the 19th century who are celebrating this working-class identity. Now, forms of dress are not the only way that we do this. We can also do it through language. Now, in the 19th century, one of the major differences compared to today is the way that language is used to recognize class status. So basically, you have people that are saying, your lordship, your excellency, master so-and-so. Right? They're very careful about kind of delimiting class differences. And especially for lower class people, they are supposed to kind of recognize their quote-unquote betters and to recognize them explicitly in this language. People also used to do this just with even people they were friendly with, even within classes. Right? So if you look at most European languages, you'll notice that they have two different forms of, of basically saying you. There's a formal and an informal. In German, I might say du to my kids. Hast du etwas gemacht? Did you do anything? I say that. But to someone that I don't know, if I go into a business, I would say, haben Sie etwas zum Essen? Do you have anything to eat? Right? So I'd say Sie, not du, because I don't know them. In French, it's tu and vous. Spanish, tu and usted, ustedes. Croatian, it's ti and vi. 
And most European languages, as I said, do this. English, we used to do something similar where there was a kind of informal thing called thee or thou. But we kind of got rid of that in the early modern period, and now we just use you for both forms. So we got rid of that distinction. At any rate, all of these linguistic distinctions signify or, again, highlight this idea of difference. Socialists did not want to highlight difference. Socialists, especially between members of the working class, want to get rid of the idea of difference. And so one of the things they do is they develop a new way of communicating to each other. They don't say, Mr. Jones, Master Jones, Your Lord Excellency Jones. They just call everybody comrade. In German, there is a gendered aspect to this because the language has gender. But in German, you would say Genosse or Genossen. But what we're doing here is every time we talk to someone, we are verbally performing equality and brotherhood. We're verbally saying, my ideal is that you and I are the same because of our class status, because of our class identity. Okay. The end results of all these developments are that by the latter half of the 19th century, socialism is not just an ideology, it is not just a political program, but it has emerged as an identity. It has emerged as a way of life that shapes people's worldviews. Now, class identity, of course, is not the only game in town. There is another identity that grows up across the 19th century that people are learning, that they are embracing that they will eventually become to celebrate. And of course, that idea is national identity. The idea that your primary belonging is tied to this thing called the national community. And while today we would say, well, that sounds very reactionary, that's very conservative, that's very obvious. In the 19th century, especially in the beginning of it, that is a very revolutionary movement. If you go and you watch Les Mis, there's a moment in it, so the if you don't know the story, basically, they're, they're preparing for an uprising. It's all these working class guys. They, they want to overthrow the king. Uh, and so basically, they prepare at this funeral of a general who is very uh, kind of pro-working class. They're going to start the revolution. And if you watch the scene, there's all these red flags, but there's also the tricolor, which was this, the kind of symbol of nationalism, French nationalism. They live together in the same environment, in the same moment of revolution. And that's not some sort of anachronism. That's because, as I said, the nationalists and the socialists, they don't see a great gap between the two. They're both these kind of revolutionary movements trying to overthrow the last vestiges of feudalism and the dominance of the aristocracy in Europe in the middle of the 19th century. So we'll talk about this more in our next episode on the rise of nationalism. For now, I think that's enough and, and we'll stop it here. If you've enjoyed today's episode or enjoyed the series as a whole, I hope you'll consider supporting us. And by supporting us, I don't mean necessarily financially. One of the most helpful things that you can do is actually just to spread awareness that this podcast exists. Post about it or share it on your social media. Tell people what you've been listening to, what you may have found interesting, and what they might be able to get out of it. If you do want to help us out financially, there are costs associated with producing a podcast and putting it on. Uh, surprising a little bit more than I thought there would be when I started. You can make a donation to us through our website, www.historyoffthepage.com, or via PayPal or Venmo. Or you can make a more sustained commitment 
by becoming our Patreons at patreon.com. If you do, you'll receive access to additional episodes, the list of which can be found on our website. At any rate, I'd again like to thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. I love that everyone is learning, hopefully, a little bit more about the past here. I hope it can uh, be useful to you in, in some respects in your lives somewhere. And I look forward to seeing you again, or at least hearing you again next time, as we take history off the page. Thank you.